The following is a presentation of Dating Kinky, Kinky Connections, and Kinky Education. We're kinky, done differently. what women and other wonderful humans want. A frank and fun discussion about the way people approach each other for romance, relationships, friendships, or other partnerships that make us happy, as well as an intimate discussion about how to connect with our own authentic self. With questions asked by a guy. And now here is your host, John, or as we call him around here, hi there, catsuit. Hello there, Nookie, and welcome to What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, presented by Dating Kinky. And on this episode, we talk music, sex work, fetish, and advocacy with a wonderful woman who calls the Pacific Northwest home. Savannah Sly is a musician, dominatrix, and sex worker rights advocate who resides in Seattle, Washington. She enjoys meeting people, rocking worlds, and spinning plates. And today she will rock our world on what women and other wonderful humans want. It's five questions about memorable firsts. We call it the first five. First time you ever picked up a musical instrument and what you thought would happen. I thought I wouldn't be very good at playing it and I was not wrong. <laughs> Because it was my first time picking the instrument up and I grew up in a musical family and I knew that it took a lot of time and practice to learn how to play an instrument, usually. First time you picked up an implement of fetish and what you thought would happen. I thought that something would happen. I think, I think what was the first implement I picked up? I think the first implement was actually handed to me by a client, and I'm pretty sure it was a strap-on and a strap-on harness. And so I had, I knew that butts were going to be involved, and I didn't, I think he probably had to show me how to put it on. But so I, I knew the obvious was going to happen. There you go. The obvious. <laughs> first time you ever picked up a microphone in front of a group in your advocacy role and your emotions going into it? A heady mixture of high anxiety, distress and urgency and earnestness. It was not a friendly environment that I was speaking up in. We'll get into that a little bit later because that sounds interesting. First time you ever walked onto Jeff Gord's property <laughs> and how scared were you? I wasn't scared. I was feeling pretty kick-ass because I'd spent a good long week preparing for what I knew was going to be an endurance challenge. 
And the final question of the first five. First time you ever heard one of your songs played back to you, not on your own Spotify. I, the delightful, delightful. And it's always a little strange to hear yourself. We sound a lot different than we think we do, but delightful. Always, always flattered to hear other people playing my music. And as we get ready to go to break, we're going to listen to some of that music. Would you like to introduce the first song? Sure. Thanks for playing it. This song is Simone, and it's dedicated to strippers, specifically in the New England area. When business gets slow, Simone goes to Lowell, Massachusetts, to try something a little kinky in the bedroom but had no idea where to start? Or maybe your partner just told you they're into water sports, no, not the jet ski kind, and you really want to fulfill their fantasy but you're nervous. That's totally normal. 
I'm Kate Sloan. I'm a sex journalist who's talked about kink in magazines like Cosmo, Playboy, and Glamour, and on my podcast, The Dildorks. My new book, 101 Kinky Things Even You Can Do, is a guide to some of the hottest and best-known kinks out there, from age play to zapping and everything in between. Each section offers three suggestions for ways you can try out your new interest with a partner or even by yourself. Curious? Order your copy now at 101kinkythings.com and start learning new things about your sexuality. Hi, this is Jane Boone, the author of the novel Edge Play. It's a revenge fantasy where the big short meets 50 shades of grey. Only the women wield the whips and the billionaires submit. You can find it at Amazon in paperback or for your Kindle. And be sure to check out my episode with Tara Indiana right here on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. Thank you. This is Tanya Tate. And have you listened to my podcast? Tanya Tate presents MILFs Making Money. I share a whole lot of positivity, tips and tools on how myself and other women in the adult industry make money on premium social media platforms. If you want to hear me interview many different guests, then get yourself over there, milfsmakingmoney.com. And you can also search my name, Milfs Making Money, on all of your usual podcast platforms. And if you enjoyed listening to What Women Want podcast, make sure you get yourself over and subscribe to my podcast, MilfsMakingMoney.com. We invite you to follow us on social media. Check us out at What Women Want P1 on Twitter, What Women Want Podcast on Instagram, and for our kinky friends on FetLife at www.podcast. And now back to this episode of What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. Welcome back to What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, presented by Dating Kinky, joined by the amazing Savannah Sly. The first time I ever saw you was in one of the pictures from the House of Gord, as we mentioned in the first five, first time you ever stepped foot on Jeff Gord's property. That looks like such an amazing place. (laughs) And Jeff was such an amazing man. How much fun was it to do that? That was a that was a peak experience getting to work on house of gourd as a fetish model i had actually that w- i had a premonition about house of gourd just their their imagery really struck me i wouldn't maybe it wasn't a premonition but i was working in a tech job in boston in my early 20s and it was a really small group of workers only like five of us and they were all my friends from art school so we knew each other very well and they knew i was a dominatrix and they got a lot of kicks out of asking me questions so i i implemented instead of casual fridays fetish fridays where i would bring them pretty silly fetish clothes like a pair of leather pants or a spiky dog collar and they all thought that was hilarious and I would change everybody's desktops to a kinky fetish image for the day and it was what great work environment with your friends right and so I would just go online looking for like some of the craziest 
craziest but not too explicit mm -hmm. stuff that I could find. And I found an image of a woman in a purple shiny cat suit with bandage bondage all around her, like bubble, bubble, bubble. And she had a giant rubber round bubble head. I'd never seen inflatable hoods before. And she was hanging upside down from what appeared to be like a bird feeder or something in a, in a domestic lawn. And I loved the dichotomy of like plain Jane white picket fence domestic and this pretty extreme fetish bondage dehumanization uh, modeling that was happening. So that was on everybody's desktop and I couldn't stop talking about it. I was really fascinated by that image. Fast forward a good number of years and I find myself in Seattle and I'm talking to the local kinksters and they're like, well, you're going to model for Gord, right? And I'm like, what's Gord? And they're like, you've never heard of House of Gord. And next thing I know, we're on somebody's computer looking at their website. And I'm like, oh, yes, I have seen this. And I'm so drawn to this aesthetic and uh, this way of exploring uh, extreme bondage. So uh, that all lined up. I, I feel like you just really remember key moments. There are key little hints in your life that you remember that are premonitions of what is to come. So House of Gord was one of those for me. What is it about Jeff's work and the work of the team around him that made so many dominatrices saying, okay, I'll be the one on the bottom this time. <laughs> because so many of the people that I have seen modeled for House of Gord are top in every way. Absolutely. And it's a strong consideration a dominatrix has to make to uh, switch publicly little, you know, to, to show that side of themselves, because in some cases it can tarnish your image that people have of you or it can be confusing to your fans. I don't really subscribe to that, but I know it's a thing and you're absolutely right. A lot of top, top tops have bottomed to Gord. I was excited to, and I think that a lot of other people do because of the level of creativity and diligence and it's it's a totally unique experience he's a he was an inventor of elaborate bondage sex machines and i think that most tops had a deep admiration for that level of ingenuity and skill and dedication to your fetish so and there's really no way to experience those machines unless you are in them. It is fun to top people in the machines, but you're essentially pushing the knob. You can do it, but you really want to go take it for a spin, you know? Did you have and, a favorite? Yeah, I did. Um, the hardest orgasm I had was probably on the riding pogo stick lawnmower. <laughs> um because it was just so funny to have this you know uh man in his middle ages he was a little grumpy sometimes it was long shoot days driving around on his light riding lawnmower it was like suburban scene i, I love again i love that dichotomy of like suburban mundanity and um hyper kink and and then you've got, and I was in a full split. So I would, I would practice for a week, stretching out and limbering up and taking good care of myself so that I could do that because actually working on House of Gord is not without danger and personal risk or injury. So I loved A, that I was able to get into the athletic pose. He was really wonderful about um, remarking on just how, uh, what, a, what a splendid treat it was to have a woman willing to do that. Uh, so that was fun. He was he was appreciative. 
Mm-hmm. And then I was wearing one of my favorite cat suits and uh, your instrapado bondage. And it, it, with every, with as the wheels revolve, that operates the mechanical up and down lever. And so the faster the lawnmower goes, the faster you get fucked. Also, I, I have to say, one of the layers to that experience that I might have been enjoying so much and they got me off so hard is there there happened to be a Swedish film crew there so there was that extra extra exhibitionism that was going on it's like oh it's not just going to be on House of Gore this is internationally documented so the show off slut and me really liked that you love your cat suits I love that's something suits. I've noticed I really do yes what is it about them compression clothing my friend it just activates my nervous system there's a reason why superheroes tend to wear tight clothing i think it has something to do with um uh, stimulating your circulation uh preparing your muscles for action and i'm all about action so whenever i put on compression clothing uh, i just physically feel great um like i'm ready to do high kicks jump over walls and beat up bad guys attack people up so i really enjoy it and then also aesthetically it's not too shabby either i mean have you noticed that cat suits happen to be kind of sexy with a name like hi there cat suit yes i have (laughs) (laughs) so yeah the fetish the visual fetish appeal can't be understated also it can feel really good to experience sensation through cat suits depending mm-hmm. on what the material is made out of and um, I'm a slut for touch and um, so I like to slink around it's very they're called cat suits for a reason and I am fairly feline I like to stalk around and jump on things I'm very pouncy and then I like to be petted and I purr and it just feels great to prance around being all hot and dangerous in a cat suit what can I say it's pretty simple I have mentioned this to some of my guests who do have an affinity for cat suits. I call it the greatest mindfulness exercise you can have Hmm. because at any one time you can think of any body part and it's being hugged. (laughs) Oh, that is true. At least for your external body parts, your surface area, I Mm -hmm. should say. Yes, that is a delight. And um, there is definitely a mindfulness aspect to the crotch zipper must be very mindful about the zipping of the cat suit (laughs) where the genitals are present yes i had a scene just about a month ago where i was re-zipping the crotch zipper on my cat suit with a very much a sadist and this one didn't have a protector like a lot of the winter fetish cat suits that i used to Mm -hmm. have and so I was trying to be careful and a little bit got caught. And I was like, oh, that was not good. And she goes, you expect me to not like that? <laughs> and she just started laughing while I'm in pain, which, of course, that's what she loved. It's kind of delightful. The only thing I I'm a very intentional sadist and I, I can delight on a little blooper here and there. But, man, it's hard to get things out of zippers once they're in. Mm-hmm. Ah, And I think I've just known, I was also like, you know, different life. I was also a camp counselor in my youth. (laughs) And um, I uh, ran into uh, not one, but two uh, young boys who accidentally got themselves zipped up in their haste. And that's just, it was just sad. (laughs) It was just that. So I think that's what I bring to it. It's like, just be careful, very mindful with the zippers, very mindful. 
I want to transition to talk about the woman outside the suit. What made Savannah Savannah? Well, we start with the name, which I didn't pick, uh, but I was working at a, I guess you could call it a strip club in Malden, Massachusetts. It was called Showgirls. It's sadly no longer there, but it was a bachelor party in call out call strip agency. Pretty fascinating place to work. This is pre Savannah Sly. I had been doing erotic massage and other naughty things for money for a while. So I knew that there was a whole array of things out there, but I'd really just dip my toe into the more vanilla end of the pool. Uh, I had had that gentleman hand me uh, a strap on before and be like, try this on. Uh, so I knew that there were things like that out there. People had sucked on my toes, but I didn't know anything about being a dominatrix. I, I, I don't think I even really knew that was a thing, but here I am at this strip club for lack of a better word. And I'm at the front desk and the person behind the desk is asking, well, what's your name going to be? And I'm like, I don't know. I've had a lot of names already. I mean, we were kind of joking around with really extravagant names that sounded fun, but a little silly. And there was a girl next to me who was nodding off a little bit. She, she had a rough time, but she kind of woke up and she's like, I love the name Savannah. And I was like, do you now? She's like, yeah. And you have nice hair for a Savannah. And I was like, why, thank you. What's your name? And she's like, my name is Harley. And I'm like, well, there you go. You heard Harley. I'll be Savannah. How's that? And it actually, it stuck because I, I didn't know that that name was going to be my name. I'd already had a dozen or so names at that point. So you kind of just flip through them. And while I was at this club, I was actually experimenting with advertising on Craigslist, trying to get people into the club to come see me. And I decided to do a little, um, uh, she said I had nice hair, which was funny because I was wearing a wig. I actually had a shaved head at the time. <laughs> and so I had a blonde wig, a black wig, and then a long red curly wig. And um, I had different lingerie sets for each of them. And the, the names of those personas respectively were Brooklyn, Malibu, and Savannah. And I would dance as all these personas. And Savannah, who actually had the black hair and red lingerie and kind of a goth look, was far and away the most popular. So Savannah stuck. That's where the name came from. And then I realized that red lingerie looked good on me. So it was a little, little what do you call that? A little focus group, I guess, mm -hmm. that I had with my clients at the club. Mm -hmm. When was the first time you knew you were going to go into the industry you went into? I didn't know I was going to go into the industry I went into. <laughs> I mean, do you mean sex work in general or BDSM? Sex work in general. I didn't know. I had no designs. I had no plans. I didn't even know it was a thing. Sex work was not in my lexicon. This was back in 2003, I think. I had just graduated high school from a rural place in Vermont. I was in Boston. I was attending art school part-time. I was working at a theater box office for about $6 an hour part-time and scrapping by. So I knew I was broke. I knew I had art supplies to purchase. I knew that I had some student loans to account for. I had, I, with all of that aside, I had zero designs on sex work. And I think if you had proposed such a thing to me, I would have been insulted, frankly. I went home on my first winter break 
I found myself on my parents' computer at 4 a.m. cruising Craigslist because people had told me you could sell furniture on Craigslist. I'm like, oh, maybe I can sell things or find a job. And I did find myself on the erotic services section kind of I've always been attracted to sexualized material and ads and things that I thought were seedy um, or underbelly or just a side of society that was prohibited. Always mm -hmm. been attracted to that. Shocker. Uh, so I'm scrolling these ads and I was actually being deeply judgmental looking at these ads. I was in school for photography. So I was like, this lighting is terrible. This is a grainy photograph. I mean, I, you know, you don't you want to look sexy? And I was I just thought it was super trashy and skanky, which did not prevent me from calling a number <laughs> that I saw associated with an ad that said, sex for money is illegal, work in erotic services. And it was a photograph of two women's butts with money all over it, which I thought was kind of cheesy, <laughs> but it, it didn't, it, I, I ended up meeting those butts. They're very nice. I'm still friends with one of those butts almost 20 years later. Um, but I like, uh, I didn't know what a happy ending was. I didn't know what erotic, I knew what a topless massage probably was that simple, but I didn't know what a happy ending was and fetish fantasy. I didn't know what that was. I had very little clue. Um, but I just called the number at 4am from Vermont, uh, as a, like an 18 year old and, um, gave them my number. And then the next day at around noon, my mom called up to me in my bedroom and said, Hey, honey, there's someone on the phone for you from Boston about the job. And I kind of freaked out realizing what I had done. And I grabbed the cordless phone and I ran upstairs and I got under all the blankets. So no one could hear me. And I'm like, hello. And, uh, there was a guy on the other line, the recruiter. And he's like, you called about the ad let's meet. I'll tell you what this is about. And when I got back to Boston, I ended up going out to a hotel and meeting this guy. And there was another girl there also interviewing. She was a Harvard Victorian, actually. And we were there. And uh, so I didn't think about any of this. I just did it. And we were there and I had dressed up for like a regular job interview. I wore like a nice sweater and some black slacks and was trying to comport myself well. And, you know, um, which is in retrospect, kind of ridiculous. Um, <laughs> But then he's like, okay, great, you're hired. He didn't tell us what the job entailed. He just said, okay, you sound great, you're hired. Let's take some photos and we'll start advertising you and you can start working tomorrow. And I'm like, oh, we're gonna take photos right now, okay. And so uh, thinking back to the ads I had seen that I was criticizing, there was a couple that really stood out to me as extra trashy where it was super meat market photos of um, women hold in, in a shower stall holding the shower head in their panties and that's it with their face turned away to hide their identity <laughs> and I remember just thinking like this is just like a it might as well be a slaughterhouse you know this is terrible and so he brings us into the bathroom tells us to trip down to our panties <laughs> and says grab the shower head and I'm like no way you're that guy I'm I'm that girl I'm you and so it's all been a real lesson in like moral judgment that we pass on others and where where does that come from I'm interested in where that comes from because yeah I was that girl and I turned my head and they took my pictures and um I started working the next day I showed up at 8 45 a.m like you would to any job and they were like what are you doing here <laughs> like and I'm like I'm ready to go anyways I just sort of fumbled my way into it that was a massage ring that I ended up working with kind of a crazy story there but yeah, and, and then I, I started getting far more deliberate 
after I realized how much I enjoyed the work and that I had found a whole secret world of possibility that really uh, did benefit me in a lot of ways and um, tickled my interests. So fast forward these many years and you are one of the top people that advocates for the ability of women to be able to do this to make money, especially in a time where wages aren't what they're supposed to be, the misogynistic aspect of business is what it is, and you are out there fighting for people to do what brings other people joy. Where did that come from? It came from that first experience and um, just a little little semantics thing. It's fighting for the right of anybody of any sex or gender mm-hmm. to use the economy of their body as an adult without fear of being punished with state violence and discrimination. And thank you for clearing that up because that is very important. Sure. Yeah. Sex workers come in all genders and sexes and walks and backgrounds, but I know what you mean. So that first experience I had, we can just go right back to the beginning. Cause I feel like, in fact, we can go back further to an experience I did have with prohibition, criminalized prohibition. Cause that's what the laws around prostitution are about. Prohibition is about trying to control people doing something and Um, harm reduction is acknowledging that people are going to do that something and let's figure out the safest way for that to be done that has the fewest consequences. Um, Prohibition is don't do that or you're going to get punished and that just people don't people are going to do it despite the consequences. So I learned that very early on when I was in middle school. Um, My parents are artists, um, musicians to be specific and we had a, a middle-class upbringing. I had a middle-class upbringing, which was great. Um, and in retrospect, I would have been kind of scratching my head, like how do these musicians have uh, this middle-class life? Because it's really hard to make a living as a musician. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say you can't do it, but it turns out my parents were involved in selling pot um, with other people. There was a pot farm in Virginia and um, that's where our stable life came from. Mm-hmm. And um, we were living in Vermont at the time, but the farm was down in Virginia and my father got busted traveling across state lines with a delivery of weed. Mm -hmm. And so he got federal, federal mandatory minimum sentences under the war on drugs for drug trafficking. Uh, And how that played out for me was coming home from basketball practice with my mom who was really quiet in the car. And I was so confused why she was my first day of practice and I had a new coach and she wasn't asking me, but my new coach was just really unlike her because she was so invested and involved in what was going on. And we got home and there was six huge black SUVs in the driveway. And she said, honey, some men are here to talk about business. Please just sit in the living room. And it was obvious that it was the FBI because our house was swarmed with people with FBI uniforms on, Mm. men here to talk about business. And they um, trashed our house they sliced up pillows and stuff in my bedroom. They took all of our drawers and emptied them out and kicked them through. It's winter in Vermont. There's snow, slush, and salt everywhere. My mom didn't even, she had like a eighth on her for her personal use, maybe. And um, I saw them harassing her 
verbally. They sexually harassed her, I would learn later in private, um, digging through her clothes and saying inappropriate things. Um, they were packing up all of our stuff. Civil asset forfeiture is a thing. And then the phone rang and I was, I was sitting right there. I was the only one not technically doing anything. And I answered the phone and it was my father and he was bawling on the other end saying he was so sorry. And I had a flash of anger as an eighth grader. And I said, what did you do? And I, to be honest, I can't remember what he said. Um, I just remember him crying a lot. And then at that moment, I saw um, an FBI agent put our computer into a box. And I've always just been really into computers. I played computer games a lot as a kid. I'm like, they're taking our computer console. And immediately I'm like, you're the problem. The state is the problem. The FBI is attacking us. We're being attacked by police officers, essentially. And I had wonderful parents and all any anger that I had was directed immediately at the state. So that was a radicalizing moment for me. It only got worse once my dad went through court and had to go to prison, having to visit my dad in prison, like nonviolent, super sweet guy, great dad, watching my mom have to uh, struggle with three part-time jobs. She didn't have a college degree. She was a musician and she was of middle age. And so watching a middle-aged woman trying to hold it all together, which she did valiantly. And um, then watching my dad get out of prison and having to build himself back up with a felony conviction um, with all the hoops you got to jump through on, um, what do you call it, parole, state custody. And so, and none of that stopped me from smoking pot as a 15 year old. <laughs> so it's like, I can't think of a more dire consequence. Uh, I knew the consequences. And if anything, I was just like, fuck it, I'm going to do exactly what I want. And I'm just going to avoid the police. And um, so that's my background. And then getting into sex work, I saw the same exact things happening. I mean, A, it's like I, I did experience bad management in that first ring that I was in. I experienced bad management. Um, I experienced watching how immigrants um, really can get exploited because they are so susceptible to blackmail. Um, our manager was coercing sex out of one of our colleagues saying he was going to get her deported as a prostitute, which he got her into. And so I got to see a lot of different inequities play out in the workplace, but then I also had a really phenomenal experience was all of us getting together as a collective. There was one older woman in our group. She was about 40 at the time. She'd been a corporate accountant. We're still friends. It's the butt that I saw earlier, you know, still friends with that, but she's awesome. <laughs> and um, she got us together and she's like, Hey, uh, let's talk about the pros and cons of working with this guy. And she had a whiteboard and everything. And there were way more cons than pros. And we called him into the room and we fired him. And he didn't see that coming. You never hear about workers firing their pimp. Um, we fired him. It was awesome. We started our own collective. Everybody made money every shift, regardless of whether you got picked for a gig. She taught us how to use Excel. She taught us how to do our taxes. Uh, our screening got way more secure. Um, but then our uh, former manager would call the police on us. He would hire his friends to come in and try and mess with us. He blackmailed us and he tried to use criminalization and stigma to either get us back into his thrall or to get us out of the industry as competition. So all of that was, and it's, it, it just, all my experiences with the war on drugs sort of paralleled what was playing out um, in this new sex work scene I was in. So yeah, so I've always been pretty invested in removing those criminal penalties and that stigma and those immigration laws. We got to talk about those too. I have been through doing this show for the 70 some shows that we've done. Absolutely fascinated by the passion 
whether they be dominatrices, whether they be fetish models, whether they be athletes, whether they be actresses, whether they be educators, authors, everyone believes in what they do. Why would anyone deny somebody their absolute passion unless it is absolutely hurting somebody? I've thought a lot about this and trying to have a balanced view on what I'm doing. It's like, yes, we're all passionate. We believe in what we're doing, but so do pro-lifers, right? So I have had to check myself a few times to be like, am I an evangelist? Am I trying to pass laws that will cause a lot of harm? Having to be responsible and think about that. And I do think that I'm on the right side. Um, I understand the fear of prostitution. I understand how under a patriarchal capitalist society, it can be expressed in deeply toxic ways, especially in a society where workers have such little leverage. Um, this is one reason we advocate for decriminalization as opposed to legalization. Legalization would um, benefit corporate interests and workers would be still criminals if they were operating outside of a legal regulated framework. We just want to stop arresting consenting adults for doing what they're doing. Um, also, I've been thinking a lot about the stigma around sex. It's always bewildered me uh, since I was a young person and on, like, what's the big deal? Why are people so upset about sex? And I've had to take a little perspective as far as time and history. And um, I think anybody who's had a UTI can understand that antibiotics are amazing. And thank God we live in a time where antibiotics are available. Thank, thank goodness we live in a time where prophylactics are available. Um, without condoms and antibiotics um, and ways to avoid getting pregnant, sex is a whole different ball game. It's um, much riskier, especially if we don't have access to um, other ways that we can take care of ourselves through folk medicine, herbalism, things like that. So I think that sex uh, was maybe, maybe rightfully so a heavier topic or something to be more feared um, in times where it had um, stronger consequences before we had a better understanding of um, infections and diseases, um, uh, especially, I mean, but also it's like, it's also a form of control, <laughs> like mm -hmm. the, um, you know, wanting to control reproduction, control um, uh, who has access to up and coming labor, you know, young people um, wanting, wanting families to have as many children as possible for your armies, um, for your labor capital. So there's also that angle too, but then it's, I don't know, it's, it's confusing, but it has dawned on me that that might be where a lot of the sex stigma that we have is sex is dirty, scary, dangerous. I mean, we do have the HIV epidemic that we're still grappling with. So it's not um, something to be taken lightly in a lot of ways. I do take it lightly <laughs> in a lot of ways, but that's because I have access to a lot of information and a lot of tools to keep myself safe. And what I really wanna do is expand those options for people. And I think sex work is one of those places that is still shrouded in a lot of scariness. People don't understand. I mean, you see somebody working outside, you see a woman, a young woman in a short skirt outside just getting into random cars. A lot of people are rightfully unnerved by that. They might not have, there could be a couple of different things going on there, but gut level reaction, people are scared for that woman. Um, 
also I think um, sex workers have been branded uh, pretty well as as disease vectors, and a lot of that comes out of uh, World War One and World War Two, where syphilis and gonorrhea um, were seen as threats to military power because uh, wherever you find military camps, you're going to find sex workers, um, and so that's where you get things like the American Plan, which just became um, you know forced mercury treatment um, and detainment. Uh, wayward. That's where we get like you know homes for wayward girls, you know, of women who were prostitutes or just thought to be loose. Um, so I don't, it's, it's, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. And, but I think that all of that, I try and take all of that to inform my advocacy that I'm doing now with others to make sure that we are being responsible. Um, and also to help take down my angry response to people who stand in our ways, trying to understand where that comes from. It's not out of a place of just inherent hate. I don't think, I think there's a lot of loaded history there that we got to unpack. Obviously, the United States is, and even Canada, is a much different and bigger place than most every place other than Russia, China, and maybe India. But is there a country, is there a North Star to look towards about a place that's getting it right? Yeah, there is a place. Um, we can look at our colleagues in parts of Australia and definitely New Zealand as places where decriminalization has been a model since the early 2000s. In New Zealand specifically, they uh, decriminalized, I think around 2008, um, they did publish a report about 11 or 12 years later what they found was that there wasn't an increase in trafficking necessarily. There wasn't necessarily even a huge increase in sex workers uh, that they could document. And um, they have had some challenges. Um, for instance, immigrants were left out of that decriminalization effort, uh, which means that migrants were still vulnerable to blackmail, exploitation, uh, just being in a disempowered state as sex workers. Um, and they're working on that right now. But um, yeah, uh, New Zealand is totally getting it right. And I did have the good fortune to go with my good friend, Mistress Matisse, down to Australia around 2013. And we worked in legalized and decriminalized models. And I have to admit the legalized model was pretty cool, except the issue was you have to be a licensed sex worker. And the issue there is even in a legalized place, a lot of people know it only takes a shifting of the political or social wins um, to change sentiments around sex workers. And then all of a sudden your name is on a list and that can lead to uh, travel restrictions, getting in or out of the country. That can obviously lead to employment or housing discrimination. You might lose custody of your kid. A lot of the things that we see here in the US when people have a criminal record um, but under the decriminal, oh, and what that means, people find a way. People will work around all the rules. So it's like you need a license. That just means that there's a bunch of sex workers who aren't working right now selling their licenses to people like me. <laughs> so, um, yeah, with my Australian accent, of course, you know, I, li I totally live here. Um, uh, yeah, but in de under the decriminalized models, it was pretty awesome. We were in Melbourne and, um, there's sort of like a state version of a Planned Parenthood. You need to show that you've had a recent test, mm -hmm. um, STD, STI test, and um, that you're an adult. You need to be of age. So we went to like the state Planned Parenthood. They did not give a damn that we were 
you know, they're, it's, they're very chill. We, I, I was afraid that because we were from the United States, it was going to be an issue, but um, they're just there to make sure that you are, are don't have a, a, a test, a positive test that you need to talk about mm-hmm. and get taken care of. Um, but I, um, I did the, I was with the doctor. I'd peed in the cup. I had gotten my blood drawn and I'm in the office with the doctor and he's like, all right, well, you look good to go. So um, how many, um, how many, voucher cards do you need and I'm like excuse me what do you mean he's like voucher cards like how how many brothels are you going to be working in and I was like uh I don't know he's like I'll give you eight (laughs) (laughs) that sounds so much like New Zealand it's beautiful well that was actually Australia or Australia yeah but um yeah so Matisse I, I would love to go to New Zealand I have met um some of the advocates from down there and talked about how they got to decrim and it's fascinating but that Matisse and I didn't know about New Zealand when we were in Australia mm-hmm. that was um right right as I was just getting interested in the advocacy of things but I gotta tell you brothel hopping in Melbourne so fun oh my goodness you want to talk about a fun girls night out activity go check out all the brothels and figure out which one you want to work in pretty cool As we head to break, a little bit more of the music of Savannah Sly. Would you introduce this one for us? Sure. This is my advocacy decriminalization anthem, and it is called Rescue Two-Step. I got a bunch of rubbers. I got a burner number. I got a hotel ads on back page, and I'm setting up shop. I'm coming to your town. Yeah, come and get me while you can, boys. Let's get down.
Hello, I'm Jesse Sage from Peep Show Media. Peep Show Media is a multimedia magazine bringing news and stories from the sex industry. Be sure to check out our website at peepshowmedia.com for essays, porn reviews, events, interviews, news stories, and more. Also, make sure to listen to our podcast, The Peep Show Podcast, anywhere you get podcasts. And for a bit more of a personal glance into my life, make sure to check out my January 15th interview on what women and other wonderful humans want. Hi. This is Rachel Leadham, aka The Conscious Masochist. I'm an author and sadomasochism integration mentor who encourages the mindful exploration of your dark side. I offer astrological birth chart readings to interpret your sadomasochistic blueprint through the clues found within your chart. You can learn more about my work, including the ebook Conscious Masochism, at my website, www.rachelleadham.com. And join us on Instagram at The Conscious Masochist. And be sure to check out my episode in the archives of What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. This is Alicia Zadig, author of the new book, Yes, Mistress. I'm also Mistress Alicia, a leading dominatrix and BDSM expert. My book, Yes, Mistress, takes you on a provocative, eye-opening journey into the erotic worlds of kink, fetish, and female domination. Join me for a fascinating conversation. Male submission is more common than you think, and more rewarding than you can ever imagine. Yes, Mistress is available now on Kindle, and you can pre-order your copy at yesmistress.com. Hi, I'm Venus. I've been sharing my love for this beautiful relationship dynamic for, well, years now. And I am beyond thrilled to announce that finally there's a matchmaking service for single women and single men who want a loving, cuckolding relationship. It's called Venus Connections. It's a personalized matchmaking service and three-week educational program that's safe, private, and individualized for what you want. Women, you no longer need to endure the headache of filtering through blank profiles and dealing with online creeps. And men, you can stop wasting time on those fake profiles and women with all sorts of ulterior motives. Venus Connections works for you to find what you want. You can learn more at venusconnections.com. That's venusconnections.com. You deserve the relationship of your dreams. Are you liking what you're hearing? Check out the Total Archives wherever you find your podcasts. And please... Remember to subscribe so you don't miss a minute. And while you're there, help John out by giving him a rating and a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now let's get back to what women and other wonderful humans want. Welcome back to the show with Savannah Sly as we are talking about advocacy. And I want to talk a little bit about music because we heard just before the break one of your songs. You did an entire EP, as it were, of songs about sex workers. Did you have any inspiration uh, of particular people you were thinking of? Or was it just 
wanting to kind of capture the world in uh, lyrics and music? I'm fascinated by sex work and I wonder if I would be even if I wasn't a worker within it. It is my muse and I think it makes sense that sex workers and other um, scandalous types, <laughs> scandalous uh, feminine sexy types are um, muses throughout history. So uh, whether I like it or not, sex work is my topic for my art. Um, before that, it was sex. <laughs> so it's like a natural step. Like in mm -hmm. high school, I was making art about sex and art school. And then I started sex work and I'm like, oh, you know, a financial component. Great. So much more depth. And the I am fascinated by the topic. And I have just met some of the most interesting people in this work. I've gone to amazing places. It has held up a mirror to my own life and my personal relationships and given me different ways to think about intimacy and exchange and relationship and yeah so all my songs are pretty much all my songs are about sex work which I'm a little self-conscious about because I feel like a little bit of a one-trick pony but it is earnest it is just the 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 topic that I want to talk about what is more difficult to recover from top drop or performance drop? I don't think I get either. Okay. I don't get top drop. I've heard about it a lot. I don't get performance drop, but what I do get is kind of what you might think of as con drop, but I don't get it at cons. I get it after pulling off a huge event. Mm -hmm. I really like to build to the show, to the protest, to the we used to host a festival in Seattle called SAS and it was a, you know, multi-week thing. And if I don't have something immediate, like I need a day of rest, but if I don't have something immediately lined up to just keep rolling, then I can start to feel, uh, it's a, it's a funny feeling that I think people would describe as top droppy where it's just, you feel like a little hollow, uh, like was that, was that worthwhile? things like that. But I think that one of my coping mechanisms in life in general is just to keep moving from one thing to the next and reflect as you go. So I am fortunate that I don't suffer from too much of that sense of void feeling after events. I always quote Liz Lemon when it comes to that. I want to go back to there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I tend to, I feel fortunate. I know that feeling. There are a few, there are a few things um, like spending, um, I don't get top drop, but if I spend a wonderful weekend with people, I just really adore in general, like actually sex worker advocates, um, having, um, like meetings, I think I get post meeting drop because I really like getting shit done. And I like speaking with brilliant minds and strategizing and trying to figure out how to solve the problem that's bugging us all. And when that is just popping, I am high as a kite and, it's after those kinds of intensive that I can feel like, where's my group? Where's my army, my people, my team? So I relate to it that way. I want to go back to the meeting. Understood. When you talk about those wonderful groups, you also uh, mention in your biography that you are still a practicing dominatrix and a practicing sex worker. Yes the one-to-one -one connection that you have with the person that's playing with you 
or your client or even a love, what is the thing that brings you the most connection with that person? That really varies on what type of connection we're having. I have different kinds of connections with people. Uh, There's just so many. I am a strong believer in having numerous platforms for which to exercise different aspects of our persona. I think of life as karaoke, uh, which song is appropriate for which situation. Um, Sometimes it's these boots are made for walking. Uh, sometimes it's nine to five by Dolly Parton. And um, it's, it's by, I, I think, showing the correct side of your persona, what you have to offer and matching that with the person who's showing you the side of themselves that is harmonious with that. And I think for me, a lot of um, con- not, not hitting the mark or um, not sinking is when somebody is showing a side of themselves that I'm not seeing correctly or they're not seeing a side of me correctly um, or um, they're wanting a side of me that I cannot present or that I must force to present or that is over over air got too much air time I have I did experience I know a long time ago around 2014 or so I did start to get a little burnt out on being a dominatrix because I was sessioning all day which is like what a dream it's my life is amazing but you need balance. And um, so my connections during that time were still great, but occasionally I could tell that I really had to turn it on as opposed to letting it flow. And so that's just, a, I, I feel that the, the person connecting with me, if it may have, they may have had a stronger experience than I did because I'm, I'm just sort of turning it on so I can do the thing, you know, um, which I figured out that, you know, you got to nourish yourself to make sure that burnout doesn't eat you. And I figured out ways to do that. And so now I feel nice and balanced. And I can also be at this point in my life, I haven't, um, I have the very, very good fortune of not having to have had to advertise for many years. I've had a solid stable of subs and playmates for a long time. I'm very blessed. And so all those people, I um, I get to be picky now. And I do feel like I earned my stripes. <laughs> you know, I've had a lot of sessions with people who I would maybe care not to see again. It happens as you're, you know, cutting your teeth as a sex worker or a dominatrix. But now I've just got the most splendid, um, respectful, adventurous, cool, interesting, lovely, adoring subs and playmates. So the connection there at this point, it's like we're connecting in session and we're connecting during those intense moments when they happen. But then there's also a lot of um, more uh, gentle or even domestic or friendly moments that are deeper. Like I'm at a point of comfort where it's like um, I can, a lot of my, um, my playmates know about my family life. They know if somebody's sick. Um, if I'm going through a hard time, I can actually tell them I would have never, ever done that before, um, because I wanted to keep the fantasy, you know, and Mm -hmm. I've learned that, um, with the right people, if I trust them, I'm not going to tell just anybody about my personal life. Um, but that's where the real connection is. It's like, I'm going to slice and dice your balls and tell you about this thing that I'm actually really anxious about. (laughs) And, um, and then we're going to hug at the end. And, um, and I earnestly can't, and and let me know how that big presentation goes. You know, I really like that well-rounded full body, that, that, that fuller connection of um, knowing more about a person's life and feeling comfortable and safe enough 
to have them actually know different parts of my persona. How important is vulnerability when it comes to making connections? I think it depends on what you're looking for. As a sex worker, I feel at times like a therapist, (laughs) in which case I do need a person to be vulnerable so they can tell me what's actually going on and I can help them explore that. Sometimes I feel like a babysitter. (laughs) Sometimes I feel sheerly like an entertainer uh, where I don't necessarily need somebody to be vulnerable. I just need to suss out what is going to excite and entertain them. Um, And um, I prefer not to be vulnerable. I mean, A, I'm a dominatrix. (laughs) Um, B, that's not what I'm there for. Um, For other people, it's really up to them, the level of vulnerability that they want to bring. I feel like people, people can bring their vulnerability or not to me. And also I'm a professional dominatrix. It's a little different than if you're in like a relationship with some, and you're playing with power dynamics, that's, that's different. Um, But as a professional, I invite people to come as they are, as long as they are operating within my parameters of respect and safety. And I've had people come to me and just dish everything before we even start playing. They're like, here is here are my insecurities, where my personal relationship is at, how my body is, and all, you know, all this stuff. And, uh, and here are my childhood fears. Blah. Okay. Now, what are you going to do, mistress? You know, and um, that can be really fun uh, because they're already escalated. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, you just did half my job for me. um psychological scene um but then I've had people come in um uh I had my the the example I'll use of people not coming in with their vulnerability worn on their sleeve is I this was a beautiful session I had two uh buddies they were both firemen and they were in town on a convention and they kind of dared each other to come and see a dominatrix. It's like they wanted to, but and I wondered if there was like, there was totally a homoerotic element that we didn't talk about that I was, I was getting off on. I'm like, mm-hmm. you guys are really sexy. Like these big, and they were so, they were kind of Tom of Finland, very like, like big muscly, like macho men. Mm-hmm. And, um, and what they wanted to do was they wanted me to try and break them. And the role play was that I had drugged them. And I was a spy and I tied them up and I was going to torture them in front of each other and try and get them to release the secret code. So it was an interrogation scene, but they were trying to, they were trying, they were like yelling to it. They're like, come on, buddy, don't let that bitch break you. You got this. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and it was amazing. And neither of them said the magic code. I didn't get the code out of either of them. And I, I did all sorts of weird shit. Oh, all wow. Shit. But it was the power of them. I think they were, it was like, it's like being in the trenches together. And I've never done a scene like that um, where I think alone, I would have gotten it out of them, you mm-hmm. know, especially when I whipped out like the sounds, you know, um, but uh, they really held each other intact. I was fascinated. I thought it was so hot, but um, they, they, they were not vulnerable at all. And I think we all had a great time and a pretty deep connection. So, you know, it really depends on what you want to do. Do you have a story of a client that has come back to you and said, without you, I could have never discovered my authentic self? Yeah, there are tastes of that. I'm not sure. I mean, people may have said that 
explicitly to me. I think people reveal shades of that. I, I, I am often a starting point for somebody's journey yeah. or I'm somewhere at the beginning. I'm not a catalyst. People, people can discover themselves without me because they can go and see other dominatrix or they might have a fling with someone or they might, they might find another outlet. I find that, I, I think that people will find a way and I don't like to think that I am the reason people have a more authentic life. You know, I'm here to um, help shepherd those experiences and help people figure out what they want to do authentically. Um, I have had um, a lot of people share with me that um, having a playful, relaxed, interested, curious attitude around what feels to them like really heavy taboo stuff is really helpful just to take take the heaviness out of the situation. Um, and again, I think curiosity is so important because for somebody to say that they want to cross dress, for instance, can be, it can feel like a life or death decision to like, like it can feel like the anvil's about to drop on you if you share on that, which I think is so fucking ridiculous. So somebody says, and I can usually tell when someone's really nervous about it. Sometimes I can't. But regardless of how somebody feels about it, they want to cross-dress. I am down. I am excited. Yes, you're going to, oh, I have a pair of panties that's going to look awesome on you. Do you have a favorite <laughs> color? Are you into satin or, you know, what, you know? And so just embracing it. And I think that's what sex workers, that's one reason we're so valuable is we don't, we, we tend not to criticize people. We tend not to pile on the same social stigma shit that people are so paralyzed by with anxiety. And so I have had a lot of people express gratitude for um, aiding in that process of realizing that it's not a huge deal and also helping people um, maybe start to talk with their partners about things. I've had a lot of gratitude around that. And then definitely with, um, gender exploration and especially transition um, before I even really was cognizant of transition um, I was playing with people's gender a lot and then years down the road they would come out as trans and they'd be like thank you so much but that's all them you know they take the credit for being brave you know as you look towards your next chapter because this chapter is in full swing but as you look forward to your next chapter what do you think it will entail I don't know. Every time I try and make plans, things change. So I've learned just to be on the ride and to just gravitate to what feels good and useful and right. I, um, in the advocacy realm, I am experienced enough to have a bird's eye view of what's going on nationally and a bit internationally. And I I think I might want to get involved in endeavors that help to bring more philanthropic funds into the sex worker rights movement space to um, educate on why it's an issue that is relevant to so many others. Um, because I think I would like to um, help connect and support networks of advocates that are already going. The cool thing that I've gotten to witness is when I got started in Seattle, there were sex worker groups, but there weren't a ton of them. Now there's a lot of people active and mobilized a lot of groups, individuals, um, social online groups, social media groups. And so I would like to support that natural um, networking 
um, and uh, get some money and some dollars and some structure into this space because this issue isn't going anywhere, but we have a really hard road ahead. And um, so anyways, I'm definitely still committed to the advocacy space. I wanna record more albums for sure. Um, so I got some more material and I wanna get out there with that. And um, I really wanna go on tour. I kind of had plans after I released my EP to start touring around. And then I don't know if you heard about COVID but this thing happened in 2020 mm -hmm. and it kind of derailed a lot of plans. So I wanna tour around and um, other than that, I don't know, make a lot of mischief. Um, make out with a lot of people, have a lot of orgasms, wear some cat suits. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm, all, I'm here for the ride. And the thing that I first noticed about you from the very first picture I saw of you through your journey today, you always have a smile on your face. Ah, <laughs> that's great. I'm glad to hear that. I'm, uh, I feel blessed. Um, I'm a positive person. Um, I know that because people have called me Pollyanna and then I've taken some tests that affirm that positivity is something that I have for better or for worse. And I think there's a lot to be hopeful for. I think we live in an amazing time and I get to do such incredible things. Why wouldn't I be smiling the whole time? So thanks for noticing and sharing that with me. That's cool. And I am positive that I have absolutely enjoyed having you on the show. Oh, well, thanks for having me. It's really great to be here and get to chat with you about all this. What song shall we go out on? Let's go out on um, A Magic Spell. This song is a sex witch song, and it's all about seduction, and it's called Siren Song.
I first noticed Savannah back when I actually lived in Seattle. She was always such an amazing model. But now that she stayed with her roots and grown into such a multi-dimensional force, it's going to be interesting to see where she goes from here. And I can't wait to follow her future triumphs. And that will do it for this edition of What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, presented by Dane and Kinky. I'm John, also known as Hi There, Catsuit. I hope I've earned the privilege of your time, and I remind you to always remember consent and to love each other always. What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want connects with you. We invite you to follow us on social media. Check us out at What Women Want P1 on Twitter, What Women Want Podcast on Instagram, and for our kinky friends on FetLife at WWW Podcast. This has been a presentation of Dating Kinky.